science enthusiasts. I'm your host, Jason Zakowski. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, but you probably know our dogs, Bunsen and Beaker. They're the science dogs on social media. This show takes what's best from their account, the curiosity and fun found there, and swirls it into podcast form. Every week, we're going to take some deep dive into an area of science and look at the research that's going on with our pets. We'll also have an expert guest who will enthrall you with their area of knowledge. This is The Science Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Science Podcast. We hope you're happy and healthy out there. Big changes happening in Alberta. The students are back in school. So I'm recording this a little bit earlier than normal um, because I fully anticipate it being a gong show to organize all the kids for the last month of school. Good news on the vaccination rates. I don't know what's going on. Maybe the government was secretly a genius or federal government, but um, Canada has now surpassed a lot of countries in first dose vaccinations. We just zoomed past the United States the other day. So for being so slow at the start, it seems like we're rapidly increasing um, the number of people that can get vaccinated. Adam just got his first shot and we're just so proud of him. He wasn't scared at all. He wanted to do his part. I couldn't be prouder of him. Just he's a great kid. All right. On the science podcast this week in science news, we're going to take a look at the rover that China landed on Mars. What? China landed a rover on Mars? Uh Uh-huh. True, true. In pet science, we're going to take a look at a study that asked the question, do dogs see things when they smell the thing that they're smelling? Do they make a mental picture of it? And that's interesting when you factor into the fact that dogs have such a powerful sense of smell. So because their smelling is so powerful, did they actually see what they're smelling? Oh, it's so cool to get into it. Our expert guest this week is Joseph Vaughn, who is a timber expert down south in Georgia. Um, so we got, we're going to get a really interesting perspective. We had Michael Norton earlier in season three, who talked about wood in Alberta, like the boreal forest. And now we're going to have Joseph Vaughn talk about all things timber, all things lumber, all things forest in a different part of North America. The differences are so cool. Hey dogs, how do trees get online? Well, they just log in. (laughs) Oh man, that pun is so funny. You would not believe it. (laughs) Okay. On with the show. Because there's no time like science time. This week in science news, China got a rover to Mars. I am here also. (laughs) So the rover landed on May 14th. So a little bit earlier this month, right? And the first pictures got back to Earth on May 19th. And there's kind of an interesting reason why there was such a delay with the first pictures. Now, this is this has been some really good news for the Chinese space program. Because earlier this month, you may remember the on, on Twitter and on the news, uh, hashtag Chinese rocket was trending. Because it was coming down and nobody knew where it was going to land. Um... One of the funniest tweets I saw was, (laughs) I'm a huge fan of the Animaniacs uh, from the 1990s, and they're back on Hulu now. It's a a cartoon, okay? I know, silly. But the one guy, the one guy's, uh, there's three little characters, and the one guy's name is uh, Yakko. 
and he does this song where he sings all the different countries of the world. And at one time I had memorized it. Like I just loved that song. Like United States, Canada, Mexico, Panama, Haiti, Jamaica, Peru, Republic Dominican, Cuba, Caribbean, Greenland, El Salvador too. There's and it just keeps going, right? And he's pointing to all of the different countries on this map. And it was like where the Chinese rocket is going to land. And it was like, <laughs> anyways, the, the, the rocket wound up landing in the ocean. But but I was talking to my students about it and they're like, "What? where could it land? And the answer I could tell them was, well, you know, if it lands somewhere that's not a, a lake or a river or the ocean, it's going to ruin somebody's day. And even NASA was like, even NASA was pretty upset about it. They're like, you know, that's kind of irresponsible to randomly crash a rocket somewhere. And they were kind of right. So this is a little, this is good news for the, the Chinese space program. So the, the rover is named Zhurong and that's spelt Z-H-U-R-O-N-G. All right. And for the Americans listening, that's Z, Z-H-U-R-O-N-G, not Z. It's named for the Chinese god of fire. It's actually been orbiting Mars since February. And the, it, the spacecraft that brought it into the Martian atmosphere or into the orbit is called the Taiwan 1. It landed on this vast open plane where actually NASA's Viking 2 touched down in 1976, even though like it's really far away. So the orbiter and the rover together is a big step for China. It makes China the second country to successfully land a rover there. That's a big deal, right? The only other country that's landed rovers there is the, the United States. You could you could argue that NASA's international, but really the only thing that Canada helps out with is we have some like really cool astronauts occasionally, you know, one of them's got a really nice mustache and he plays the, the guitar. Or we're like, hey, do you want some robotic arms to push stuff around with? And NASA's like, sure. Um, but it's the Americans, right? So um, pretty good for China. China's also landed rovers on the moon. Um, the rovers are called U-2 and U-2-2 with their different moon missions. So the Taiwan 1 orbiter, the thing that got the rover to Mars, um, took a video of the rover and the lander and the rover separating, and it plopped down. Unlike the Perseverance rover, right, that we were all so excited about in, in February that landed, this rover took a while before pictures came back because it's got to beam a signal to the orbiter to then beam back to Earth. So it's maybe a little bit different than Perseverance that way. It's not as rugged and it's not as, I guess, high tech as Perseverance for sure. So the first week, it's just going to kind of sit on the little pad that it's on and go through a million different system checks to make sure it's all good to go. And then the Jurong Hazard Avoidance and Navigation cameras, that's what it has, will say, good to go, and it'll start rolling down the landing platform. They're hoping it will be able to study the soil in the Utopian Plantilla, that's where it landed, for about three months. And it's one of its main missions is to look for water ice beneath the surface. It has radar, so that's kind of a cool little device it has that can distinguish between rock and ice. It's similar to what um, the U-2-2 lander used on the moon. Um, it also has some uh, some instrumentation to analyze stuff on the surface using chemistry. So the Taiyan 1-1 orbiter will be around Mars for about a full uh, Martian year, quote-unquote Martian year. And that's quite a few Earth days. That's 687 Earth days. And after that, it's all gravy. We all know that NASA's missions are like, yeah, the rover, we're hoping it will last about six months. That was spirit and opportunity. And then those little rovers just kept on chugging for years. 
again, curiosity, I think they're like, maybe, maybe it'll last a couple of years. It's still going. Perseverance might last 20 years. It might outlast us. And so that's really cool. As more nations get involved with dis- with exploring space, that only increases the data that we get back to study these really remote and amazing places. As long as, you know, as long as Canada doesn't send up a rocket and it's like, oh, dang, we lost it, eh? And they're like, shut up, you hoser. Uh, and they fight about their Canadian rocket that's going to randomly come down. You know, we, that's good for that's good for everybody to be involved in the space race as long as it's safe for us on Earth with the discoveries. That's science news for this week. This week in Pet Science, we're going to take a look at a study that asked the question, do dogs visualize what they smell? Humans do, right? Think of something that you smell and see if you can bring a picture to mind of it. There are probably some smells that are really powerful and you can just picture what they are. I'm trying to think what what one of those smells is for me. I don't know. Like, I don't know. My dad, my dad bakes bread. He's very, he's a very good baker. He bakes bread. And I remember growing up as a kid, waking up to the smell of fresh bread. So when we go visit them, and it hasn't been that often during COVID, but I got to hang out with them outside the other day because we're all vaccinated. We all got our first shot now, which is great. Um, and I walked in and I smelt that bread smell and it just like brought me back to when I, I was a young kid waking up to the smell of fresh bread. It's not super healthy for you. <laughs> I've had to like really cut down the amount of bread that I eat, but, um, man, is fresh bread good. Hey, <laughs> so do dogs do that and think about how powerful their sense of smell is. Does that mean they can like smell a million memories? Oh, it's fascinating to think about. So one of the questions the study started with was an overarching question of if you give, like, for example, think of a dog that's searching for a lost child. You give them a piece of clothing, but what does that scent look like to them? So to study this idea, scientists got 48 dogs, half of which had special police training or rescue training and half that didn't. They, they, they tested them. So in, in a laboratory room, the scientists slid each dog's, they had a favorite toy each dog had across the floor to a hiding, hiding place. So they smushed it across the floor and hid it away. And the dog didn't see what was going on. So the dog was in another room. Our researcher pointed to where the smell, quote unquote, odor trail started and then made some kind of verbal command like, go get it, look for it. Now I'm thinking to both Bunsen and Beaker, they're good at this. Like we play this fun game. Um, We learned about it when we took Bunsen to obedience training. Like you put a treat under cups and the dog has to like find it. And Beaker's really good at hunting out smells. Bunsen is better than you think for a Bernice Mountain dog. He can, he can track scents pretty good. Anyway, so they told the dog, uh, go get it, look for it. What the funny thing was is they pulled a bamboozle on some of the dogs In one trial, the dog found their favorite toy. So they like sniffed it out. They went to where it was. Oh, yay, I found my toy. But in the other trial, they had a different toy at the end of the odor trail. And they wanted to take a look like, was the, what what happened? What did the dog do? Because the, 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 the idea was if the dog is smelling their favorite toy and then they find something that isn't the toy visually, is, does that not mesh with the, the what they think in their brain? Many of the surprise dogs continued to search for their toy that, that they were looking for. And they were not happy they found the fake toy. <laughs> and so that was an indication in the study 
that dogs had a mental representation of what they expected to find. This study was uh, published recently in the Journal of Comparative Psychology. Now, the amazing thing is the family dogs, random dogs like Bunsen or Beaker that aren't trained to do search and rescue, and definitely but Beaker is not trained for any kind of police work, <laughs> both the family dog and the trained dog did about the same on the test. So that confirms that education doesn't necessarily improve a dog's sniffing uh, uh, performance. What was maybe a little bit faster was the command, right? The command, find it. So the trained dogs was like, oh, I need to go do that because I've been trained to do that. Whereas the family dog was like, find it. They're like, what? Oh, smell. And then they would go look for their favorite toy. The same team has found that horses also, like another animal, horses also have images of things in their head or other horses. And, and the things that stand out for horses that in the test were um, their owners, so people they have a bond with or you know humans they have a bond with, and other horses based on sounds and voices and whinnies. So instead of smell, they were using auditory signaling. The conclusion of the study is based on the surprise and the perseverance and the stubbornness to find the toy that they want. The dogs, as soon as they started to smell the smell, had a mental idea of what they wanted. So they continued to search for the picture of what they thought. That's really cool that dogs can make a mental picture. So I love it. Like, do you, when dogs smell things that we smell like, do they picture us? Isn't that, doesn't that bring a little, doesn't that make your heart really warm? Thinking that if a dog smells like your shirt, it pictures you. I love it. That's Pet Science for this week. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Science Podcast this week. The Science Podcast is always going to be free to download. But if you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. The first one is sign up on our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Bunsen Burner. There's multiple tiers of support. We have a ton of fun with the patron group. You get to be on the podcast. You get postcards from Bunsen and Beaker. You get swag. You get early pictures. You get a whole bunch of awesome stuff. So check it out. The lowest tier is only five bucks a month. The other way you could support the show is checking out our merch shop. Our merch shop is hilarious. It's got all of these adorable cartoons of Bunsen and Beaker. We keep producing more. I just want to thank the people that have supported the show that way. We're really, really proud of our merch shop because the, the merch, the clothes, is really high quality. The colors are vibrant, and um, we come up with some really fun designs all the time. So check it out. That's at BunsenBurnerBMD.com. Thanks, everybody. On to the interview. On the Science Podcast, in the Ask an Expert section, I'm thrilled to have Joe Vaughn, Procurement Forester, with me today. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm doing great. Thanks for taking the time out of your morning to uh, have me on. Oh, it's great. If I can wake up in the morning and talk science, that's a good start to the day for me. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, where are you calling into the podcast from, Joe? I am based in Athens, Georgia, here in the United States, um, and it's the home of the University of Georgia. Okay, right. Yes, yes. I've heard many people speak of the University of Georgia. Um, the other question we've been asking our guests, too, is how are you and your family doing with uh, COVID-19? We're doing really good. We uh, have fared really well, you know, quarantining, wearing masks. Um, you know, I guess this time last year, it was a little bit uncertain. Uh, my wife actually works at the hospital as a NICU nurse. And so we were pretty concerned just with mm. the pandemic and 
not wanting to, you know, cause harm to ourselves, but also the, uh, the little premature baby she works with. But, uh, all is well. Um, a few people that I've known have, you know, gotten the virus, but thankfully, um, you know, they've recovered. And so we're just kind of, I'll tell you, I forget when in Canada they canceled hockey, like the NHL. That's when it made it real for everybody. They're like, wow, they canceled hockey. What the, that's okay. This oh, is, I bet this is legit. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, what is your training in science and where are you maybe right now in your career? Yeah. So I like to always take people back to how I got my start in, you know, the natural resources. And my career began 10 years ago um, on the fire line as a wildland firefighter. Oh, cool. So when I graduated high school in 2010, I was entering college, you know, really unsure of my future, did not know what I wanted to do just quite yet and struggling a little bit. Um, you know, I was an all A student in high school, but for whatever reason, I just could not make it click within college. And at the time, I was actually a history major. Um, so because of not having fun at school studying history, because ultimately I thought I wanted to be a teacher, um, I started to Google environmental internships and came across a pilot program that the National Park Service and the Student Conservation Association was hosting to bring minority students, uh, both undergrad and grad students out to Wyoming to experience a difference departments within the National Park Service. And so because of that program and being around people that looked like me, had the same dreams and aspirations, um, I quickly learned that, hey, you know, I've always liked to be outside. Um, didn't know you can have a career where you could combine science with a lot of hard work, sweat equity, um, hmm. some labor. And that just amazed me. So in 2011, I had an internship to go to Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming and, you know, interview or not really interview, but got to um, detail to the different departments within the National Park Service. And the one that I fell in love with the most was the fire ecology program. So, you know, early on, you know, not having an academic background in natural resources, I gained a lot of on-the-job experience, you know, learning how fire, um, wildfires impact the landscape and studied those effects. We were actually fire effects monitors. So learned how to collect data in the field, learned how to identify plants and trees. And I was just hooked and fascinated. It was so cool. And then, you know, beyond the science background, um, had the opportunity to work on several wildfires. Um, so got to really learn about teamwork, leadership, um, and just safety in general, um, because it is a pretty dangerous profession if you're not um, aware and if you are complacent um, in your surroundings. Because of that, and I think it was really the right place at the right time, I actually met an alum on the fire line that went to the University of Georgia, the Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources. And at the time, back in Georgia, I was going to a community college um, in South Georgia. And this alumni, Josh, shared with me that there is a forestry and natural resource school in Athens. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I've had a lot of friends go to the University of Georgia, but it just didn't interest me when I graduated high school. 
And he told me to check it out and gave me the contact information for the recruiter. And so because of my background in wildland firefighting and then meeting this alumni, I learned that there's a school basically in my backyard that could prepare me to <laughs> be like a conservationist, um, you know, learn about sustainable management of our natural resources. So I had, uh, you know, continued working fire, but transferred to this University of Georgia program. Um, and while I was in school, I combined that academic background with my work experience. Um, and, you know, so I've received an associate's and bachelor's degree in forestry. And some of the things that we would study or my science training would be civil culture, forest health, forest economics, and wood properties. Um, so civil culture is just learning how to, I guess, manipulate the landscape to grow the best trees or grow the best wildlife habitat. Uh, forest health seemed perfect because I was doing wildland firefighting, studying the effects that fire had on the landscape and even talking about the invasive species. Uh, you know, I know common to Canada are the bark beetles, which have been you know, oh, devastating yeah. to the forests up there. So we learned about that. And then forest economics really supports my current role as a procurement forester, but we'll get into that. Um, and so does wood properties. <laughs> So, you know, did the wildland firefighting thing for five to six years, um, transitioned out of that role to eventually become an independent contractor after graduating. And then now, since 2018, have become a procurement forester for a sawmilling company. Oh, okay. That is, that's, that's a, <laughs> that's an amazing story. So when, oh, I just have, I have a couple follow-up questions. Um, so when you were working on uh, like forest health with the f with fires, were you were you on site with active forest fires? Yeah. So Whoa. yeah, this is and again, it is a dangerous profession, but we take safety so seriously, and we really assess situations before we go into any unknown um, fire. You know, we have our our, um, our rules and how we uh, try to go about combating fire. But uh, yeah, so I was on a fire effects crew. And then when I stopped firefighting or just about wrapped up my career in firefighting, I had transitioned to a fire use module. So a fire use module specializes in um, you know letting fire take its natural process in the landscape um, because you know, there was this history where the U.S. Forest Service wanted to put out fires, you know, by 5 p.m. the next day or something like that. And because of that policy, it went against the ecology of the landscape. And so now, you know, because we had removed fire, we're seeing the actions of past mistakes where we have some pretty explosive fires, um, very devastating to the public and also... Um, the greater natural resources. So this fire use module that I was on, we would go to active wildland fires. And as long as public safety was not threatened, we would try to let fire do its natural thing. Um, so we would physically dig line to push a fire into a certain area um, that, you know, we had fire ecologists tell us that based off of this science and the landscape and the plant community, Fire is a good thing for this area and it, it will help regrow the vegetation or, you know, diversify the, the types of plants and trees that are in that area. 
So that was really neat. I mean, I did that before coming to UGA um, to get an academic background and it started to click. Like I was doing it for work. And then when I had the science and the peer reviewed papers to kind of inform what I was doing, boots on the ground, I was like, I love this. This is so cool. Like science is married up to all this hard work that I've been doing. Um, Why not? Like, why not should I pursue a career like this? So, yeah. It seems like this uh, area of science is with, like, as you said, with boots on the ground, uh, it probably, it it keeps you active. Like, were you drawn to it because you're an active person? Like, you liked the hard work? It was enjoyable that way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had started Mm. it when I was 18 and did it for five or six years. So I was definitely um, pretty young, but I did work with people <laughs> At the time, you know, being an 18 year old, you're like, oh, you guys are old, but they were only like in their mid 30s, 40s, uh, <laughs> 50s, and even sometimes in their 60s. And, um, you know, so we take training very serious to be able to work on the fire line. So just to kind of, you know, pull back the curtain, um, we would have to make sure we pass a physical fitness test before we would even be hired on. So we would have to walk three miles um, with a 50-pound pack on within a certain amount of time. And I think it was like maybe, oh, I can't remember, maybe 27 to 32 minutes um, of walking. And that was pretty demanding. Um, we would just do that on the track. But some of the other crews like Hell Attack or the Hot Shots, you know, some of the elite of the elite firefighters would have even more arduous physical fitness tests. Um, and so each day after you were hired on, we had at least an hour of physical fitness training. And I was just, you know, accustomed to that because I was running cross country while I was in, um, at that community college, um, had grown oh. <laughs> up wrestling, um, through middle school and high school was always playing sports. So that just kind of like fit into my natural mold. Um, and of course, it was attractive to me just because I love to work out and love to take care of my body. And it was just a challenge to be able to work on a wildland fire. Um, and I mean, we would work 14 days straight, 16 hour days, and you wouldn't shower for those 14 days. Um, and you would be sleeping <laughs> in a tent. So not only was it physically demanding, but it was also very mentally challenging um, to be away from your loved ones, to be away from you know, outside communications. It wasn't like we had cell phone service or we had newspapers to read what was going on in the outside world. But um, it was just something I think that I knew that I should take advantage of while I was young and didn't have like relationships or a family to take care of. Hmm. It also sounds like that job, uh, at least the, the early the early jobs when you're on those uh, active fires, it, it kind of not everybody could do it, right? You need a very special person to to hack it in a job like that. So in, that's a really interesting take. I like. Yeah, that. I say that hmm. fire kind of has prepared me to conquer all the challenges that I face in the natural resource industry. So I'm very thankful that's where I started my career. And um, it's, it's pretty much a common thread with a lot of natural resource professionals, um, at least that I've met. You know, they start in fire and they transition away from it. Um, just as their learning and experience grows. <laughs> Forged in fire. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so now you are a 
procurement forester for a sawmill. Could you talk to everybody a little bit about what that entails? Absolutely. So this is kind of one of those industries that's growing here in the U.S. South. Um, and, you know, I wish I can remember how far it goes back, but I work for a um, company called Interfor. And we are one of the oh Interfor yeah, okay yeah one of the largest lumber yep. providers in the world. I think we're probably like in the top five. Um, mm-hmm. So you know our main headquarters is based in Vancouver, but I work here in the U.S. South in Georgia, um, attached to one of our middle Georgia mills. And so you know I'll explain what a procurement forester is and what my role is, but it's important to understand you know what is a sawmill. Um, I'm always surprised when people you know, don't know where the lumber that's at the heart of their home comes from. (laughs) Um, So a sawmill takes a tree and converts it into boards or dimensional lumber. So that log has to be debarked. The bark has to be removed from it. And then it goes through this primary breakdown machine center within a mill where it converts the log, which is round, into square cans. Um, that will eventually get cut into different dimensional size lumber. Um, think of like a deck or the framing to a house. And so after that primary breakdown occurs, we have to sort that lumber by grade and size. So each tree produces a different kind of quality um, lumber. And so we have to be sure that we sort it by the grade and different size or the width. Um, two by fours, two by sixes, two by eights, two by twelves. Um, because at the end of the day, we're trying to sell that lumber to our customers that have a very specific use for it. So after it's sorted, we put it through a very big oven, basically, where we dry that wood to reach a certain moisture content. So this is where that science comes in. So we have to dry lumber so that we can prepare it to be shipped to other areas. Now, here in the southeast, the relative humidity or the moisture content or the water <laughs> in the air is very high. Uh, we get very yep. humid. And so we want to make sure that if we ship it to somewhere like Texas, where it's very dry, that the wood does not shrink when it gets transferred to there. Because that relative humidity or the moisture content in that piece of wood has to reach equilibrium to the environment. Um, so if it loses its moisture content, content, it could shrink and the strength of that lumber, um, could be reduced and you don't want weak wood in your house. No. <laughs> um, so after it's dried, we plane it, which just means we take it from rough lumber to finished lumber where it's got a smooth surface. And that just helps with improving the grade and the strength and the integrity of that lumber. And then we ship it to our customers. Our customers might be um, in Vancouver. They might be in California. They could be in Japan. They could be in the Caribbean. We ship lumber all over the world. So Hmm. my role, (laughs) getting back to the procurement forester, procurement is procuring raw material or purchasing logs for our facility. So my specific role is to work with private landowners um, to purchase their timber. Um, so I've got to, you know, take the inventory to know how much trees they have on their land. And I also have to know that forest economics piece to know what does the market want me to pay for their timber? 
And then after I do that, I have legal contracts that I have to sign. I have to make sure that that said timber that I'm purchasing um, is owned by that landowner or is owned by that agency. And then I have to create harvest plans. So there's that sustainability piece. You know, logging gets a pretty mm-hmm. bad rep if it's not done correctly. And I think that's perfectly fine. So I create harvest plans to make sure that we're not degrading the uh, sorry, the environment, uh, making sure we're taking care of wildlife habitat, um, making sure that we're not ruining that piece of land so that that landowner does not have the ability to go back to replant it. We don't want to do that. We want to make sure that we're protecting that land so it can be put back in the trees. And so once all of that is done, um, I supervise anywhere from two to eight logging contractors. Um, these are the companies that will go out into the forest and cut down the trees, process the trees, and they deliver it to our mill. Um, so my role, along with my coworkers' roles, are pretty critical. You can't make lumber without the resource, which is the trees. So it's really fun. I mean, I'm on the road. Uh, Monday through Friday, um, I might be driving in the truck anywhere from three to six hours a day, um, meeting with a lot of different people, a lot of different backgrounds, but it's so much fun and it's so rewarding. Do, uh, just a couple follow-up questions. The first one is, I, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I could be totally off base on this, but I feel like positions like yours that balance sustainability with landowner rights all of that um is is relatively new i I would say probably in the years past willy-nilly trees were cut down for profit oh absolutely and so i mean if you look at the history of removing trees um off the land like if you could think of a book with chapters we're probably within the last like five or six chapters within a hundred chapter book. So it's a really new sort of thing that might've occurred, I guess, in the last 50, 60, 70 years. Um, and we've been doing forestry for, you know, ever since the colonies hmm. were, were created here in the South um, and just that sort of thing. So, you know, it's our responsibility. Um, you know, we have laws and regulations that really dictate what we can do. They want to make sure that we provide clean air, clean water, and we want to make sure that we're able to continue providing those ecosystem services for the future. Um, You know, we only get this natural resource. We only get this land one time. So we better take care of it and make sure that we're not going to impact future generations in Mm, a negative way. I love it. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. That's cool. So when you're on the road and you're 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 like a scout for trees, like in sports, yeah, right? is that that's that, very true. Love, uh, um, yeah. so like scouting, I've got my like little phone <laughs> apps. Um, you know, we have clients that we can go back to time and time again that have the land or the acres that they grow trees. Um, but you know, I came on with this company in 2018 shortly after I graduated and the task or responsibility they wanted me to have um, was to grow our buying area. So I had to go out there and basically cold call um, landowners, see if they were interested in selling me their timber. And that's not as easy as it sounds. 
Um, you have to remember <laughs> that this timberland is their financial asset. Um, because here in the South, like we grow timber, not always, but a majority of landowners grow timber to have, um, you know, it as a financial asset. Whereas you might have agencies like the National Park Service or the Forest Service or even the Crown in Canada, they might just manage that for a little bit of financial benefit, but also protecting it for wildlife habitat and uh, ecosystem services like clean air and clean water. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is very important to that person that I'm buying that timber from. Um, you know, sometimes the money that I pay them for their timber will go and pay for their retirement, or they might be cutting timber because their family might be having to pay for medical bills, or they might be taking that money to pay for their children's or their grandchildren's um, education, um, be it a private school for their elementary, middle school or high school or even college. So hmm. I, you know, really take that to heart because that makes me want to do the best job as possible, pay them a fair price for their timber um, and really take care of them because they are allowing me and granting me the opportunity to cut down their trees that really are near and dear to their heart. Hmm. What I just, I have so many questions, uh, <laughs> I, but, but I can only ask a couple or we're going to, I'm going to take up our whole morning. Um, are, are people sometimes shocked when they get a call from uh, somebody like you to realize how much their trees are worth when you cold call them or you broach the subject? Oh, absolutely. So there's this. um, So let me take a step back and explain a little bit of this background. So here in the Southeast, you know, we have a deep history rooted in Jim Crow and uh, segregation. And, you know, when the slaves were freed, um, you know, they were supposed to get 40 acres and a mule. Um, and there's a story that you can, you know, just Google to find out um, how black people came to own land. And so that land carried through um, generation after generation after generation. Oh, interesting. And, you know, as they held on to this land, it had trees on it because, you know, primarily here in the Southeast, but there was this disconnect of selling their timber, being able to trust someone that was going to buy that timber. And sometimes they were offered by these timber buyers, you know, my position that I do now, um, they were offered by these timber buyers, maybe like a bag of $10,000. They're like, Hey, we want to cut your timber. We'll give you $10,000 right now. And there is this distrust that formed because these black landowners quickly found out that their timber was actually worth maybe $500,000, not $10,000. Oh my goodness. Good and so this day. happened, you know, you know, over time for many, many years. Um, and you have this subset of landowners in this area that, you know, aren't readily willing to trust timber buyers because of that history. Um, so mm-hmm. when I do call people, um, I have to build that trust and tell them like, hey, you know, I buy timber from people like you. Um, I'd like to price your timber, but the best way for them to feel safe about it is to do something we call the seal bid system, where they have several people come bid on their timber. So you might have me and four other people that are timber buyers 
you know, tell them, hey, this is how much we will pay you for your timber. And based off of how we appraise the inventory or the standing trees, they might have bids ranging from, you know, $200,000 to $500,000. And then that landowner has the power in the situation or in the negotiation to pick the highest bid. So that's kind of that um, economics, you know, of, of, of uh, free market or capitalism. Even though I mm. want to buy their timber, if I'm the lowest bid, then they don't have to go with me. Um, they can go with the highest bid because that's returning the most money. Um, so people are absolutely surprised when you call them. And, you know, there's a lot of times where I call them and they're not really familiar with the timber selling process. So, you know, it's not my job to help them out, but just because I know how much that land could mean to them, I put them in contact with the government. Um, you know, we have the Georgia Forestry Commission where they, um, you know, through taxpayer dollars have to represent landowners and they're legally bound to do the right thing for landowners. Um, so I make sure that they have really good representation and that they have an expert that's going to be in their court advocating for them. Not that I wouldn't advocate for them, but just to be completely transparent, to take out any negative assumptions and just to be completely fair and upfront and share information so that at the end of the day, they get what's best for them and their family. It's all about the relationship and the trust building, it seems. That's uh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us go to forestry school thinking that we're going to work with the resources, but really we do a lot of working with people. And that's very mm -hmm. important for people to understand. Like when you get into a natural resource career, it's great. You might not see anyone for a week or two, but when you do see a person on um, best believe, you really need to take the time to grow that <laughs> relationship and talk with that person. Uh, the the irony of this is uh, um, Jamie Rains. Uh, we had her on the show. Mm -hmm. She's uh, she's in Australia, and she works with landowners, uh, cattle ranchers in Australia. And it seems like much the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. She, she's on the road. She's in the middle of nowhere, and then boof, she's got to <laughs> she's got to work with the landowner and convince them X Y Z for both profit and environment. So that's kind of cool. That's right. You got to share the science <laughs> and the facts and the data to um, you know inform people's decision-making. And uh, I love doing that. It's so important. Cool. 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 Okay. So I have a question as a Canadian mm -hmm. about Georgia's forest industry. First off, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you right now, I was super ignorant going into this conversation. I literally didn't know that Georgia had a forest industry. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's our Could best kept secret. <laughs> Could you, and maybe people even from uh, like the United States, maybe they don't know, like, especially if they don't live near Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. What's unique about your area of the world with forests? No, absolutely. And, you know, to your point and me saying it's, it's like our best kept secret, um, you know, I grew up around a very suburban metro populated area. And, you know, I think a lot of us are realizing that, you know, people don't know where their food comes from or maybe their lumber comes from. And so it's our responsibility as natural resource managers to share facts like I'm about to share about the forest industry because they just don't know about it. Um, so Georgia is, you know, let me start with the land ownership because it's very unique. Um, I think 
about 95% of the land that's in forests are owned by private landowners, um, people like you and I. We have wow. gotten passed down this land from generation to generation, and it's our responsibility to make sure that we take care of it. Um, and as a private landowner, you have the decision to do what you want with that land. Um, you can decide to cut the trees down, or you can decide to develop that land and put a grocery store or a market on it. Um, so we really try to, you know, showcase how this land could provide for not only your family, but also, you know, your community, you know, trees are providing clean air, clean water. So that's really important to understand because compared to the Pacific Northwest or even Canada, that land that has trees on it might be controlled by the government or the crown. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that's you know most of the land in Alberta mm -hmm. with trees on it is it's crown land. Yeah, like it's uh, nobody lives yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> or if or people do, it's like some <laughs> some random random folks, uh -huh. right? Like they're just in the middle of Very nowhere. Cruel. So so yeah, yeah. You know, the thing that we really like to talk about as natural resource professionals here in Georgia, Georgia's forestry industry makes it the number one forestry state in the United States. And you're probably like, okay, what really? What, like, what, what are the facts and the data behind this? Like, how do you guys quantify this? So a few things that I always like to share and point out, um, you know, Georgia is the number one state that has commercially available timberland or private land. So we have about 22 million acres of land available to grow trees on that anyone could buy if you have the money. Um, we are the number one state that has annual timber harvested volume. So each year we top, we just crush the other states and how many trees we're, we're <laughs> removing. And so like that Whoa. does sound like scary. Like, Joe, you're telling me that you guys cut down more trees than any other state, you know, that's around you or just in the nation. Yes, that's true. But <laughs> we are also the number one state in seedling production for reforestation. So not only are we cutting down trees, we're making sure that we replant the trees. And again, people hmm. that have a science background or just curious in general might say, well, okay, a seedling is not the same thing as a big old tree that might be sequestering carbon. And you're correct. But you also have to re remember that Georgia, you know, the home of these forestry schools and these natural resource professionals, um, we have been able to improve the tree genetics in such a way that we grow 48% more tree volume than we harvest every single year. So we are outpacing what we cut by what we grow every single year with what's already on the land. Um, including what we're replanting um, after we cut down trees. So you are making a, a carbon sink. Yes, literally. that's right. And so that's a amazing. lot of the governments are trying to find out ways that they could leverage that. And this is one of those like Georgia best kept secrets. Um, we create this carbon sink and we're only trying to improve it. And we're trying to share the best practices with uh, anyone else that this cares listens to because it's really important. This is one of the things that we can do to combat climate change. And mm -hmm. so Absolutely. I'll just kind of finish up with a few more of, uh, you know, these, why is Georgia the number one forestry state in the United States? But we are also the number one exporter of forest products. 
And so you have to remember that forest products are a lot of things. There's wood in a, just about everything. Uh, if you have wood that's in medicine, you have wood that's in the diapers that go on your babies. You have wood that is in the cell phone screen of your iPhone or Samsung phone. Um, <clears throat> so we export a lot of these products outside of our state, you know, internationally and domestically. Um, so that creates a lot of revenue for the state. Um, we actually create about $3.9 billion um, that go back and is invested into our state and abroad. Um, so, you know, I'm very thankful that I work here in Georgia. Um, you know, it's starting to grow a lot. Um, that's why you see a lot of the Canadian lumber companies starting to expand their footprint from the, you know, Canada, from Pacific Northwest to the U.S. South. Um, you know, in recent news, our company Interfor has even acquired a mill, I think, like for over $30 million because they know that forestry is the, in the heart of the Southeast and that it's got a great wow. wood basket to be able to make lumber, to be able to make paper. Um, so you will continue to see that for as long as we can take care of our resources. I had no idea. Like I, I had no idea when, whenever we go to British Columbia, which is just West of us in Canada, we, that's what, you know, you think about British Columbia as lumber, mm -hmm. right? Uh, for, for Canadians, right? Cause there's, there's sawmills and mills everywhere. I never thought in a million years to think about, you know, yeah. uh, Georgia, which you guys are right next to Florida, aren't yeah, you? That's like right. you're right you're, north of it. It's absolutely, it's wild. Absolutely wild. But I guess being on the ocean, you're similar to, uh, British Columbia, it's easier to ship your products internationally. That's right. We have several like, ports. Oh. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Okay, I'm, it's all coming yep. together. You, you're like you're like a warmer, muggier version of British yeah, Columbia. That's exactly right. <laughs> We're pretty humid down yeah, here. A little, little more humid. Yeah, I, muggy. I didn't mean to despair. Oh no, no, <laughs> no, more humid, more humid. That's so crazy. I'm so glad I'm talking to you. This is so fascinating. Yeah, I like to dispel <laughs> the myths. I mean, and I get it. You know, forestry and cutting down trees, it's not glamorous. Um, we have definitely, full disclosure, have not always gotten it right. But we're really trying to make up for those mistakes in the past and really be informed with science and, you know, share that. We're going through this rebranding to really help people understand that you can have a career in the natural resources. Um, forestry is so much more than just cutting down trees. Mm. And, uh, we are not going to be building things out of wood and we are not going to stop building things out of wood anytime soon. Yep. So it's not like that's going away. Huh? Okay. Well, before we move on to the, the middle of the, the, the interview, I just, one quick question is having worked in forestry, both on the front lines with fire, but now as a pure procurement uh, person, what are some of the issues that you think face for facing forestry? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, that's what's pressing for me right now as a 29 year old that's just starting their career in forestry is looking at things like the changing climate. You know, forests are very vulnerable to climate change. And I'm really glad to see that there's, you know, more science coming out about how we could counteract the effects of, you know, poor management and just polluting the air. Um, so that's, you know, very pressing for me and, you know, even our company. 
you know, we're trying to utilize every single fiber that we turn that log into lumber. Um, so like I was saying earlier, you know, we break down these logs and turn them into square pieces of, of lumber. And so you're naturally going to have the bark that falls off the tree, the chips that, you know, fall off the tree. And we take those and we sell them to um, people that make mulch so that you can grow flowers with that mulch. Or we might sell the chips to a paper mill where they'll go on and make paper with those. Or we might... <laughs> Dunder, Dunder Mifflin. Yes, no, exactly. Dunder Mifflin. So <laughs> it's funny. Whenever I watch The Office, I see the boxes with Warehouser. And Warehouser is one of those biggest companies that have land and also produce lumber and paper. So it's always like tickles me when I watch The Office and I see like uh. forestry products um, marketed <laughs> on their show. Um, uh. But yeah, so just being aware of the changing climate and doing whatever we can to learn how we could positively impact that to get that reversed. But then I would also say maybe to bring it back home for some of your um, you know, home-based listeners in Canada, um, I'm very aware of the spread of invasive species and also the loss of forest land, either from urban development or wildfires. Um, so we have a lot of great scientists that are studying forest health that are coming out with PhDs. And even though I'm just a little old dirt forester that, you know, is running logging crews, I take the time to go to some of these webinars, um, these workshops to learn about the forest pests, um, some of the bark beetles that aren't supposed to be here and trying to figure out if I ever see that when I'm out in the woods who do I need to contact? Who do I need to notify mm. so that this does not become such a big problem? Um, and, you know, that's not a part of my job, but I just care about the land so much that it's my responsibility. Um, you know, I'm not too good to do anything and just want to make sure that I take care of it. So those are probably the top three things that I think are facing uh, forestry that we're currently working on. Um, but it seems like it's a never ending battle. And you know, even though it's a challenge and, you know, the light might not be at the end of the tunnel, it doesn't mean that we should give up on that. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's great. I think all all professions, if you have a growth mindset, I think you'll be way more successful. And that sounds mm -hmm. like totally where you're at. So um, I don't know. I, 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 I definitely echo <laughs> what you're saying about uh, the stupid beetles. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, they're they're the worst. Uh, they they uh, they definitely devastated parts of um, the the Western Canada's mm -hmm. forest for sure. Uh, I think the jury's still out. But what I read recently was like, as the winters aren't as freezing cold, the winters used to like kill them mm -hmm. all and keep them away. Um, they're spreading a lot faster. So stupid beetles. Yeah. yeah. All right. One of the questions we always ask our guests for in the middle of the interview is for a pet story. Yes. Um, do you, could you share a pet story with Absolutely. us? Absolutely. So I was trying to think back of any wild times that I've had with my dog and there's just too many to pick from. So, That's hard. um, you know, I have a, we don't even know what poor Toby is. Uh, we had rescued him from a shelter. He's just this little brindle brown dog. I say he's little. I still call him a puppy, even though he's like 65, 70 pounds, but his <laughs> name is Tobias Jethro Vaughn. Um, and he uh -huh. is a part of our family. Um, you know, I get to take him to work with me 
as much as I want, as long as I know that I'm not going to see a lot of people during that day. Um, but Toby has been such a, you know, staple piece to our family. Um, he's got such a personality. Um, you know, now that we have a four month old, just seeing how he's interacting with our baby, you know, to the point where uh-huh. Luca starts crying, Toby's bringing his little pacifier to him. And I'm like, oh, uh-huh. how's that possible? Toby, you're so smart. So, um, I guess to share a story that has, Happened within the last year. Um, like I said, I take Toby to work with me and a lot of my job is to make sure that my logging crews are not damaging the land. Um, so I drive to many different tracks throughout the day, just making sure they're doing what they should be doing. And I take Toby with me because it's nice to have a companion when you're like five or six hours on the road. Um, that's awesome. And when I get out to these tracks and like, Hey, safety is really important to our industry. So I even have a little neon vest for Toby. <laughs> and, you know, so I wear cute. a hard hat and a vest and we get out of the truck and I let him go romp and, you know, do his little zoomies when he gets on the track. But there was one day we went to go look at a logging crew and I didn't want to like put my truck in a bad spot for it to get stuck. And so I was reversing on a little hill. Um, and the roads are pretty narrow because I'm trying to back my truck up in between some trees. And I open my door to get out to walk behind my truck and like look to make sure that I wasn't going to hit or get stuck on stumps or anything like that. And I hop back in. And like before I get out, I usually tell like Toby stay. He rides in the front seat. And, <laughs> you know, I get back in. I don't really look for Toby as I jump in. And I you know, put the part or put the truck back into drive and I'm driving back down the road and I'm looking around. I'm like, wait a second. Like, where's my dog? So I had like a little panic attack. I'm like, he's not in the back seat. Is he in the truck bed? And I'm like, where's Toby? And so I didn't get too far down the road, but drive back to where we had parked on top of this hill. And I'm just like yelling for Toby. I'm like, Toby, I have treats. I have treats. And I see him running up the hill. He was barking at one of the skitter operators. And I was like, oh, Toby was just doing his job. He must have seen something that I didn't. But boy, did I have a little panic attack that I thought I lost <laughs> my dog in the woods. Oh, I would have just been devastated. But um, it's, now I, yeah, always, it's terrifying. Yeah, I just always like double check and, you know, make sure that he's in the vehicle with me. Um, I just, yeah, I couldn't imagine losing Toby. That just would break my heart. And I know my wife would not have liked that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dogs are, man, there's, there's, they take such a piece of your heart. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, I've had so many panic attacks with, um, well, the beaker, our little, our golden, mm-hmm. she stays really close. She's like a Velcro mm-hmm. dog. So she doesn't keep us out of eyesight, but occasionally when I've been out with uh, Bunsen, um, cross country skiing, especially Ooh, like through our, cause we, because uh, we live in the country, mm-hmm. right? So I sometimes go for a good hour. He went a different way and I lost him. Uh, but he just came back home. Like he just went back home. So I'm like skiing through the bush <laughs> trying to look for him. And he's waiting on the porch. Like what What? What took you so long? So yeah, that <laughs> your heart leaps in your yep. throat. And you're like, ah, where, where'd you go? Yep, exactly. <laughs> I'm glad you found Toby. That's cute. And it's, you're so lucky you can bring your dog with you I to, know. to work too. That's it awesome. It is really great. That's awesome. That's awesome. 
Well, thanks for sharing your pet mm-hmm. story with us. <laughs> One of the other staple questions is the super fact. Uh, it's a fact that you know or a story that kind of blows people's minds. Now, I don't know if you've given away your super fact. My mind's already been blown a dozen times talking to you. <laughs> no, I still got um, some facts you, left. Yeah. You Okay. Could you share one with us? Absolutely. Or two? Absolutely. So I'll just, you know, share this one fact that I think will blow people's mind away. Um, and it's about the, you know, sawmilling industry. So I work and buy timber for one of our smallest sawmills. And it's funny that I say it's small, but each, here's a fact. For each hour that sawmill runs, we produce enough lumber to make a four bedroom, two and a half bed house or four bedroom, two and a half bathroom house or a 2000 square foot house each hour. And so we run maybe a hundred to 105 hours a week, which just blows my mind. Like there's enough lumber that we're producing (laughs) to make so many houses in a week. Um, so wow, we stay busy. (laughs) That's crazy. We were uh, fortunate enough to build our own house um, on the on the farmland that we live on. And when they brought in all the lumber to like frame mm-hmm. it, I was like, wow, that's a lot of trees. It takes a lot of trees. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, that's crazy. What a cool fact. Thanks for sharing yeah. that. <laughs> the last section of the podcast is a really fun one. Um, we get guests to talk about things they're, they're passionate mm-hmm. about. It could be a hobby, a cause, a sport. Um, you wanted to talk about a couple. The first one was volunteering, and the second one was uh, empowering people through advocacy. Could you talk a little bit about both? Absolutely. So a part of my day job, I do like to volunteer and get out into the community, community, and a lot of it is centered around natural resources. So I've joined several professional organizations. One is the Society of American Foresters, and because of my experience working on the wildland fire you know, management teams. I have recently rolled off as the chair of a wildland fire management um, working group. And so this working group within the Society of American Foresters helps, shares, and disseminates the science behind why we do things the way we do in fire management. Um, how can we introduce more people to prescribe fire? Um, and even to the point where, you know, we have members that will represent and talk at congressional hearings here in the United States mm. and share with the our elected officials, hey, you all should consider this. Um, you know, maybe it's funding, maybe it's, you know, allowing um, more habitat to be left as uh, old growth to um to um support wildlife or something like that and that's been really rewarding you know as someone that's pretty early in their career to be asked to be in a leadership position to you know support the group and advocating for our profession has been super rewarding and I've learned a lot and I think that'll only enhance and prepare me as I you know hopefully someday manage my own team And then another profession or organization that I take part of is the Emerging Leaders Group here in Georgia that is hosted through the Georgia Forestry Association. Um, And so, you know, this Emerging Leaders Group, again, we take the time to share um, some of those facts that I've shared today. You know, why is Georgia the number one forestry state in the nation? 
um, and also getting into schools and getting into these urban centers where we're sharing, you know, hey, you know, this is something that's in your backyard. You know, we have, I think, maybe over 100,000 jobs that um, that we provide to the state each year. So really consider, you know, pursuing a career in forestry and natural resources. Um, and then, you know, I'll end on this, something that's really near and dear to my heart. And I think, uh, you know, now is the time to strike while the iron's hot. Um, we are growing really aware of two tides of change. Um, we have a growing awareness that climate change is becoming or has been a really big problem. And there's this growing awareness, I feel like, since last summer that has really been going on for a long time that there are systematic and institutional barriers for people that may look like me or may identify in the LGBTQ community um, that just might not fit this traditional mold that, you know, is associated with the environmental community. I do everything in my power to empower and affirm the identities and experiences of these groups. Um, so it's hmm. me taking the time to speak to seventh graders. Um, sharing why the forestry profession um, is more than just cutting down trees. Um, it's me taking the time and creating an environment where I fully support and allow people to share their experiences. Um, you know, as a black forester here in the South, trust me, I've run across my barriers and have been in situations where I've really questioned my safety on, um, you know, just because hmm, of the skin color that I have. And it's difficult to talk about these things with a larger audience just because um, we have to be vulnerable and we do have to acknowledge the mistakes that we've made in the past. But I'm trying my best to do it in a way where I'm creating that safe space and I'm not going to, I guess, cancel you for the mistakes you have made. Um, you know, as long as they're not damaging to other people uh, mentally and physically, um, but just, you know, allowing people to ask the questions that they might have always wanted to ask um, so that they can further their thinking, expand their knowledge, challenge their biases and assumptions, and just trying mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, make this environmental community more inclusive. Um, because to combat climate change, we're going to need the next generation to step up and pursue careers um, in the environmental community to make sure that we can put a damper and hopefully reverse the climate change effects. I don't know. Um, that's too aspirational. But, um, <laughs> you know, just doing whatever we can to get that workforce in place. And if they want to come work for us, I want to make sure that they're supported and included in all the decisions and not just, you know, a diversity hire, because we have a long way to go, even in my profession, to change the macro and micro culture of, you know, our day jobs to make sure that people aren't being passive aggressive or saying comments like being a slave driver um, as a joke, you know, just mm. trying to make an analogy of working hard. Um, that's just not appropriate. So. Those are some things that are really near and dear to my heart. And I just appreciate you for letting me use your platform to bring awareness to that. Well, it's, it's absolutely my, my pleasure. I have, I have no words. I, I've said this before to guests um, who've spoken about, you know, d diversity and things. I'm just, I'm a white guy from Canada, mm -hmm. right? So 
I'm about as privileged as you can get in the entire world. Um, so I'm, I, if, if anything I can do to help to give voice to some changing some mm-hmm. things, uh, I, I'm just so grateful you, you spoke about it today. So thank yeah. you. Thank you so and much. Thank you. I, <clears throat> I, it's been said before that if you see yourself in a profession, mm-hmm. you might pursue that profession. And man, I'm just, I think this is so grateful. There's people like you out there that are taking those risks mm-hmm. and putting yourself out there. Um, little kids seeing you speak will see themselves in you and say, Hey, I could do that too. And that's so powerful. Absolutely. And I mean, it is, um, sometimes scary to be so vocal about these things. Um, not knowing if, you know, you're going to be just, uh, retaliated against for some of the opinions, but just trying to acknowledge that, you know, everyone has a good heart and, you know, might just be confused with, what they have learned and just trying to get them to see, you know, the bigger picture of things. So again, thanks. No problem. What a powerful way to end our interview. Mm -hmm. Um, Joe, this has been my pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, I've learned so much and I could talk to you for, I've, I have, I've wrote like a (laughs) massive list of follow-up questions that we're not going to get to. (laughs) Are you on social media? Can people connect with you? Absolutely. So I am on Twitter. Um, On Twitter, you can find me at Joe Talks Timber. Um, that's something that I probably should have mentioned as important to me section, but I do like to share for science. And it really comes from a place where I'm trying to expand my own knowledge because I don't know everything. A lot of what I shared with you all today is what I've learned through my academic background, work experience, and also asking the science, um, science Twitter community. Um, I'm also on mm-hmm. Instagram. Those are some of my more personal post, but um, you can find me at ath, A-T-H underscore Forrester. Um, and if you want to connect professionally and maybe grow your network, I'm always open to mentoring or fielding questions or sharing more about you know, Forrester careers. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, we'll definitely get those links in the show notes. Uh, so they're hyperlinks. People can just click on them and you're just one click away from all of the forest science you could ever want. That's right. <laughs> there you go. Oh, wow. Well, okay. Um, I wish we had more time, but we don't. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for giving up your morning today to talk to me about forestry, science, some really important issues, and and uh, your dog. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. It was so much fun today. And again, thank you for what you're doing, bringing science to the community and uh, just having so many different guests on. I I love it. I'm on the road so much. So I do get to listen to a lot of your podcasts. So it fills my day with expanding my knowledge. <laughs> I have a great job. I get to talk to people like you and I get to learn stuff too as we go. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care, jokes. There we go. Now I have to put on my podcast voice. You guys are probably really laughing. It's time for Woo or Wow on the Science Podcast. And the guest this week is a whole bunch of people. It's my Chem 20 IB class. Woo! All right. So, children, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to read three statements. Two of them are fake. One of them is true. It's not in that order. It could be in any order. And you have to find the true statement. And after I read them, we're going to clap. You guys are going to clap as one. So, group mind. Let's try on the count of three, one big group clap. One, two... Three. Okay, so we're pretty good at this. We've only done this once. That actually worked out pretty good. Okay. 
All right. So the theme this week is actually trees. Uh, the guest this week is uh, Joseph Vaughn, who is a timber procurement uh, specialist in Georgia. Um, so he studies all things trees, how to get trees in a different part of the world. So that's what the theme this week is. Now, remember, two of these are fake. One is true. You have to find the true statement. Okay, here we go. Statement number one, the deepest tree roots can go is about one meter or 40 inches. Okay, that's statement one. Statement two, trees were one of the first complex organisms to evolve and have been on earth for billions of years. Statement three, before trees that we know today, earth was home to fungus that grew 26 feet tall, that's six meters tall and five meters wide. All right, so here are the statements again. I'll read them one more time and then we'll vote. Statement one, tree roots can only go down one meter. Statement two, trees were one of the first complex organisms to evolve and have been on earth for billions of years. Statement three, before the trees we know today, earth was home to fungus that grew 26 feet tall, six meters tall, that's six meters tall, three meters wide. Okay, you're thinking about it. I hear some murmuring. Nobody's using their smartphones, I hope. I don't see anybody using their smartphones. Uh, you're going to clap for the one you think is true. Okay. okay. All right, because there's two fake ones. There's two, there's two fake ones. Two, there's two fake ones, one true one, right? Okay. Statement one, the tree roots. Three, two, one. Okay, nobody wants that. <laughs> Statement two, this is trees were the first, uh, were one of the first complex organisms. Three... Two, one, okay. And statement three, uh, giant fungus, 26 feet tall, six meters. Three, two, one, okay. All right. We had some people that were kind of like, oh, no, no. All right, so uh, the class, you guys nailed that first one. Um, that one was false. Tree roots do go way deeper than one meter. Certain roots can go down six meters, right? So one meter is pretty... Pretty, pretty pathetic. Though I did see, you guys aren't in, you weren't in the science park. Uh, some of the IB kids in biology hauled in a, a whole tree. They were supposed to go get like plant material from outside. And do you guys know Isaac? He had a tree, a whole tree. Why? Okay. All right. So we're down to two statements. Okay. Now the majority of the class picked the complex organisms. One. So I'll talk about that one. So if that one is true, you win, the people that clapped. But if that one is false, that means the fungus people win. Okay. Trees were one of the first complex organisms to evolve and have been on Earth for billions of years. That statement is false. That is not a true statement. Okay. Trees, trees didn't exist for the first 90% of Earth's history. They are relatively new. They have not been on Earth for billions of years. It is true. So who who had the fungus one? Who clapped for the fungus? Oh, three people. Alyssa, Arthur, and Mackenzie. Yeah, good job. So it was... Uh, oh, oh, sorry, Manya. I'm sorry, Manya. Okay. Um, so the true, the true statement is the fungus one. Um, these fungus lived uh, about 400 million years ago for a period of time. They were they predate the the trees that we know today, and they bamboozled early paleontologists because people are like, "What is this? It looks like a giant mushroom," and then they're like, 
like the, like a fossilized giant mushroom. They're like, this can't be true. It can't be a giant lichen. It can't be, what is this? But it actually was a thing. Um, before the big trees, there exist these giant funguses. You can, you, you can Google image search this and it'll blow your mind. You know, think of a mushroom, a weird looking, a weirdo mushroom that's six meters tall. Right? I mean, that, you would never run out of it on salads. All right. Good job. That's Woo or Wow for this week. We had four of my students got it right. Um, but you know what? Mr. Walton has got four of these wrong in a row. So there you go. Okay, it's time for story time with me, Adam. If you don't know what story time is, story time is when we talk about stories that have happened within the past one or two weeks. Dad, do you have a story? We got to go to the mountains last weekend for a couple days. It was fantastic um, because this week is insane. So it was nice to relax in the the mountains, even though we got rained out uh, the afternoon. Just a fun story. We there's a, a place that we go hiking. Every time we go to the mountains, and I love it, it's called Grotto Canyon. It's an easy hike, um, and it's an easy hike for the dogs. You go, go up along a cut line past some kind of um, plant that makes some kind of mineral, bauxite, I don't know, some kind of processing plant. So it's kind of loud, and you pass by it, and it gets quieter and quieter, and then you come out on this bluff that overlooks the valley, the Canmore Valley. And it's really, really nice there. And Adam always wants to, he always asks, can I go down the cliff? He always wants to go down the sketchy way. And I'm like, no, you can't go down that that way. So he goes down another way with Beaker. So they go together. While we were, and then you hike up through this like steep, uh, like uh, steep walled canyon. That's why it's called the Grotto Canyon. And at the very end of it, um, it was, there was still snow. There was snow everywhere. And Bunsen couldn't believe his best luck. And the the, the runoff was making this like chasm. And we had to hop over it. And Beaker was hopping over it over and over and over again and dragging Adam along with him. It's a good thing he's nimble-footed. But anyways, it's just gorgeous in there. Uh, At the very end, there's a nice little kind of like a slow trickle waterfall. But it was pretty packed with people. And because of COVID, we just, you know, we didn't want to be around that jumble of people. So we kind of just had a little break. And then we turned around and went back. It was just such a great hike with great vistas. Um, I think Chris is going to talk about kayaking, so I'll leave that for later. That's my story. Mom, do you have a story? I sure do. Uh, as Jason alluded to, I, w- I am going to talk about the kayak trip. And so we have memories of the last time when the dogs both jumped out of the vessel and Jason had to scramble up uh, the sharp, rocky uh, shore or the bank. Uh, so that was always on the back of my mind. Like, uh Oh, what happens if this, if they jump out? So we went out for a nice kayak, no mishaps. Everything was great. And we went back in and then the boys went out together and they took one dog with them. They just took beaker. And then, uh, we went out one more time and Jason's like, well, who wants to go? And I said, I'll go. And we took Bunsen. Well, the idea that we were going to take Bunsen and Beaker. So I have water shoes because I have water shoes. I do not like the uh, sharp rocks on the bottom and I packed them and I was very happy to have them. 
I get into the kayak. Jason's like, okay, I'm going to set it up and um, in you go. And in I went. And then Bunsen just hopped right in. And that was very strange because he was supposed to hop behind me, but he hopped in front. And he was not going anywhere. He was not budging. He was not moving. He was not getting out. He's like, this is, this is me now. And then because he jumped in, he shoved back. So the vessel, the kayak is moving backwards. And I'm watching Jason. He's like, Chris, I can't get you. I can't get you. You have to come back. I said, I can't get out. I can't get out. Bunsen's right here. My leg doesn't go over his head. I will fall in the water. And um, then I grabbed Beaker's leash and I said, call Beaker, call her. She will pull us to shore. And she did. <laughs> but you she uh, yeah, we probably with no paddle or anything, it would have been um, very disaster. But um, yeah, so that's my story. We then uh, successfully had Bunsen in the front. I could not move anywhere. I could not paddle because he's so monstrous. And then Jason had Beaker in the back with him, and he he paddled. But he knows that I'm a princess, and he's always the prince who paddles, which I love. And that's my story. All right, it's my story in story time, and my story is also about the mountains. All of us are talking about the mountains. Um, my story is about Beaker. So, if you don't know Beaker, Beaker some is like a water doggy. She gets wet from time to time. And when she gets wet, she has to dry herself off. And how she dries herself off, usually, is she will, like, shaky, 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 and then, like, rub herself up against a dry surface. Now, even if she's, like, trace amounts wet, like, you can't even feel it with your hand, what she will do is she will smush herself into a dry object, like a bed or a puppy bed, and, um, yeah, that's what she does, and so we call it Smushy Face. I got a video of it, and I think I, I, think I sent it to Dad, or maybe I didn't, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, she smushes herself into the object, like a cat, um... It is very cute. It's so cute because then when she's done, she's laying down. And if you got lucky and she was doing it in your bed, she lays down with you in the bed. So a win-win scenario. Beaker gets dry. You get Beaker. Uh, yeah, that's my story. That's the end of story time. Uh, I hope to see you guys next time. And thank you for listening to my section. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Science Podcast. This was such a fun one to put together. I really liked the wooer wow with my class. Special thanks to Joseph Vaughn, our expert guest, talked to us about timber in Georgia. And we'd also like to thank our, our patrons on Patreon and our top tier patrons who get a shout out every week in the podcast for their support. If you want to hear your name in the podcast, head over to our Patreon page and sign up. Take it away, Chris. Nate Stephenson, Debbie Anderson, Courtney Proven, Renee Hardy, Mary Rader, Shelby Leggett, Dan Fry, Mary Coos, Katia Lynch, Marianne McNally, Andrea Persons, Elizabeth Bourgeois, Karen Beth St. George, Bianca Hyde, Lisa Swartz, Catherine Jordan, Donna Craig, Lila Ashier, Jody Ogren, Liz Button, Kathy Zerker, and Ben Rathert. Let's close with the dog's motto for science, empathy, and cuteness. Uh.